0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Podcast. I'm your host, Vago Meradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Wall Street closes its worst week in six months, apparently driven by the completely obvious realization that interest rates won't be declining anytime soon. Reverberations from Raytheon's recent geared turbofan announcement continue, including for the company's partner on the innovative engine, MTU, as well as Airbus that uses the power plants on its aircraft. The outlook for Anglo-French relations in the wake of King Charles's successful visit to Paris, seeking closer cooperation between the longtime allies. Ukraine's successful strike on Russia's Black Sea Fleet headquarters as Vladimir Zelensky pleads for more help as allies grow weary on perceptions the country's offensive has stalled. This as Washington is poised as it's been for more than a year, to approve ATACMS for Kiev. Joining us today, as they do every week, to discuss all this and more are Dr. Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tuza of the Independent Equity Research from Agency Partners in London, and Richard Ablaffi of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Unfortunately, because of travel Plans and time zones. We can't get the whole team uh, together uh, given uh, the amount of European news we have. Sash is going to be joining us first with Ron and Richard later in the program. Sash, thanks very much for joining us. First, let's let's start with European markets and MTU's abysmal performance this this week and Airbus's. uh, And and uh, you know you wrote uh, great notes on it and pretty much the fallout from the geared turbofan. Talk to us about the broader market and how it performed, uh, how the group performed, but then specifically the drivers on MTU, Airbus, uh, and associated companies.
1: We talked clearly on, on the podcast last week about the, uh, the horrible problems with the uh, and Whitney Gear Turbofan. Uh, MTU Aero Engines, the um, German-based uh, uh, aero engine company, is one of the uh, two biggest risk and revenue sharing partners, the other being Japan Aero Engines, the consortium of the big heavy industry companies. Uh MCU, the week before last, was just the worst performer uh, in the sector, off about 17%. But this week, the week just gone, it's, again, the worst performer in the European sector, um, uh, off uh, 7% against the European average. I mean, it was a lousy week in the markets. So they were they were off about 4% uh, across our sector. But MCU was off uh, another 7 So put that in perspective, MCU is the worst performer 2023 year-to-date in our coverage, down 20%. And that all falls at the, uh, uh, you know, at, at, at the problems with the uh, the Pratt and the gear turbofan, and the degree to which I think you know the the, the feedback we're getting from investors is that um, I think they are beginning to realise again that the phrase is or the term is risk and revenue sharing partners, not risk, not revenue sharing partners. Um, you know, there is there are two R's in RRSP the contractual term that you have to describe your relationship with one of the big crimes. And at the moment, it's the first R, the risk bit, that is absolutely uh, to the fore here. Uh, so, you, you know, uh, our listeners will remember um, Frank Whitney uh, and Braythian Technologies said that the Eto'o fans are going to cost go between six and seven billion to uh, to solve. Let's hope that estimate is accurate. I have very little confidence in that. And we've written that this week. Um, and they've said that... that Ratium Technologies share will be the 51%, and their risk sharing partners will take the rest. Um, and it's beginning to become apparent that if you are a smaller German aero engine company, and indeed smaller Japanese aero engine companies, your share of um, that remaining uh, three to three and a half billion is very, very large relative to your market capitalization. And so that's really been what's been dragging MTU down. Um, I mean, you know, uh, for interest for our listeners, I mean, we actually think the, uh, the the fall is starting to be properly reflected in the or the, the impact is starting to be properly reflected in the share price. We actually upgraded our rating this week um, on valuation alone. But, you know, we can see how uh, at a time when they've examined very few of these engines, they've only stripped down, um, MTU said, three engines so far out of the near 1,200 they need to do. Um right the you know the the risk and if you're a risk averse investor and an awful lot are why look at mtu at this stage when there's another 1197 to get engines to go and things could get worse and one of the issues that we touched on was uh, rolls-royce which had a, a i mean not identical but certainly a similar major technical problem with the trent 1000 engine um a couple of uh, five six years back there the the cost of rectification tripled um, right. over a three-year period. So, uh, the you know, the lesson coming back from Rolls-Royce is don't assume that the first estimate of how much these things cost to repair is going to be remotely accurate, because it may not be. Um, right. So, MTU really was a dreadful performer last week. Um, but what's interesting, from our point of view, is just, uh, you know, the, the the spill through to other stocks now in the sector.
0: Uh, and talk to us a little bit about Airbus, right? I mean, you said that it was down. Uh, what are some of the drivers, and what are ma- what's management saying uh, as a result, right? Whenever the street gets jittery, management starts talking.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, Airbus, uh, Airbus saw six percent last week, which is a you know that's a big move for a, for a large stock uh, like Airbus, back down to one hundred and twenty four euros. I mean, it really hasn't gone much below the mid one thirties since uh, since July. Um, actually, since June, really, um, so it's now at its um, you know four five month low, and the worry here is a very simple one: Pratt and Whitney can only build a, you know a certain number of geared turbofans in a given period. They can only build uh, a, you know manufacture a certain number of spare compressor discs and turbine discs, and Pratt and Whitney has got to decide. But there's going to be an awful lot of input into this decision whether each engine they produce goes onto the Airbus production line for an A320neo that gets delivered or goes to one of their existing airline customers as a a spare engine to compensate for the fact that their existing engines have all been pulled back to the repair shops for uh, for overhaul. Um, And so what investors are starting to look at now is the possibility that uh, Airbus just isn't going to hit their numbers, not because Airbus has got a problem, but because Pratt Whitney has got a problem. Um, and put this in perspective, Airbus uh, guidance for the current year is for, to deliver about 720 aircraft, of which the vast majority and all, uh, all but 150 are A320 NEOs. Half of those roughly are powered by Pratt & Whitney, the remainder by um, uh, CFM, GE and, and Safran. Um, Beyond that 720 this year, Airbus has these incredibly totemic targets of building up to producing uh, 75 HB20 NEOs a month, up from the current 55 at the moment um, uh, in 2025, uh, early 2026. Uh, It's it's a very, very aggressive or very demanding production ramp. And what we're seeing in the share price now is investors starting to say, nah, can't do that, that the... um, Uh, If Pratt & Whitney has got problems with engines, and they do, if Pratt & Whitney has got production quality problems, and they have, at every single margin, Airbus won't get as many engines as it wants as quickly as it wants, and they can't get spare engines from uh, CFM fast enough uh, because, you know, they are production capacity constrained. And therefore, even if Airbus gets pretty close to their production target for this year, let's say they do 705 deliveries, which would be pretty creditable. Next year is not going to be eight hundred, and the year after is not going to be nine hundred, and the year after that is not going to be a thousand. It's going to be I don't know what, let's say 740, 780, and eight twenty five. But the whole of the the scale, the gradient of the ramp just looks in danger now because one of their two most important engine suppliers can't um, can't deliver deliver engines uh, in on mass and on time, and probably won't be able to until tail end of twenty twenty five. Um, And so I think that, you know, from Airbus's point of view, uh, they're being a bit quiet at the moment, because I suspect, I hope that the majority of management's time is spent on the phone to Pratt & Whitney, because it needs to be, Um, and then probably also to their customers. But uh, we see this as being a 2024 issue. Um, Most aircraft, most engines due for delivery this year should have been well in build by now, but it really affects the 2024 story, really affects 2025. And therefore... They're going to have to start thinking when their Q3 numbers come up in uh, uh, five, six weeks time, how they're going to frame the credibility of the ramp. Um, and, uh, you know, actually just whether whether investors take that or whether investors say until the gear fan problems are resolved, you know, we'll give that one a miss. So that's the most important story. By comparison, you know, if you want to look at the two better performing stocks in what was a, a pretty tough sector this week, you know, uh, Practically these problems are Rolls Royce and CFM's um, uh, gains. Rolls Royce was only off a couple of percent. Safran only off a couple of percent. It's not really that they uh, that they can do better as a result of this. But there's a real feeling in the case of Rolls Royce of well, uh, you know, they had a lot of problems years back. They're just in a better state because they've gone through all this process. In Safran's uh, case, I think investors are saying any airline with an order for engines outstanding and with more than a couple of brain cells to drive to together is going to be saying we can't take the risk of going with the gear turbofan and if they've got a very large potential order at the very least they get to, uh, to split it so you know we see the skewing of the market share between uh, CFM and Pratt & Whitney is going very firmly in CFM's favour
0: from here. Let me uh, shift gears and ask you uh, a little bit about the war as well as uh, King Charles's, uh historic visit uh, to France, which is, uh, appears to have been a very big hit because I'm now in France, <laughs> and it seems you know, our, <laughs> our, our travel was disrupted, uh, although it was a, a successful meeting. I'll get uh, a successful visit, and I'll get to that in, in just a second. Uh, the Ukrainians have been uh, under some criticism as uh, Vladimir Zelensky visits the United Nations, Visits Washington uh, and, and elsewhere to try to drum up uh, as much support as he possibly can. Um, w- w- you know, we've had uh, an attack over the weekend uh, on the Black Sea Fleet uh, headquarters, uh, which appears uh, to have been very uh, damaging in the United States, uh, appears to be poised to finally approve um, the uh, ATACMs, the Army Tactical uh, Missile, uh, for uh, export to the Ukrainians. Uh, it's a long range. Precise weapon, even though these, I think, would be uh, equipped in the cluster munition uh, variant. Uh, talk to us about the dynamic in the war and whether you know the grain issue. I mean, how do you look at this? I'm asking you now, as as much as your market analysts had, as your military analysts had, about where this conflict is going.
1: Um, so, uh, you know, on the ground, first of all, it's a it's a still a pretty attritional process of of grinding. I would, You know, over the week, Ukraine is, is is still making net progress, particularly down in the south. And, you know, our, our listeners remember, I mean, there are what appear to be effectively two separate uh, lines of attack in the south facing south of which the um, uh, one is far bigger, better resource and has achieved at least penetration through the first Russian line of defence and probably into the second. That that is going better. But I think you know Ukrainians are really smart. They 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 understand that if you only have a single uh, point of attack, your enemy knows exactly where they need to seal off. If you keep them off balance because you have multiple uh, points of attack, then that um, that complicates their defenders' problems massively. And then there's also a, you know a, a very a subsidiary assault up in the. Uh, northeast uh, near Bakhmut. But I think you're right. It's been the uh, the missile attacks on the Crimea, and particularly on the Black Sea fleet, that have been the important bits for this week. Um, so you know, in no particular order, the Ukrainians are claiming that they have destroyed a Russian S-400 um, uh, anti-aircraft, anti-missile uh, system. That, that, if true, and certainly you know, the pictures appear to show that, that's really very impressive. That's, S-400, before this whole assault, was probably... The top end, most feared Russian uh, uh, missile system um, It was the fa- is the foundation of the the Russian concept of anti-access area denial. The idea is if you put S-100s and their predecessor S-300s um, in an area, they create a bubble into which most aircraft n- and all rotary wing and very few missiles can actually enter. doesn't seem to be the case if they're attacked properly. Smart. Then they attack, the, the Ukrainians attack the uh, headquarters of the, of the Black Sea Fleet. Also smart, although I suspect more symbolic than smart because I suspect that a lot of what's left of the Black Sea Fleet uh, is actually being controlled either from Rostov-on-Don or or, or direct from Moscow at the moment. But what's the theme here? The theme here is trying to make Crimea militarily untenable uh, so that eventually the Russians realize this isn't worth it. And um, the degree to which they are able to take hard targets on the Crimea that they are able to take uh, out st- strategically vital pieces of Russian equipment on the Crimea uh, is all I-, I think really good progress in, the regu- in that regard. So wh- what does ATACMS do? ATACMS I think is more is more of the same. Um, ATACMS' principal role when it was first uh, deployed was to destroy uh, typically Russian-supplied um, big anti-aircraft uh, missile systems in depth over the battlefields to enable then the you know the US army and its allies then to to penetrate uh, uh enemy d- defenses with a lot of their own air cover without suffering from uh anti-aircraft missile systems it's fantastic uh for attacking bigot art- big deployed artillery systems and munitions logistics dumps and so forth and this is exactly the sort of capability the ukrainians want so at the moment if they're going to attack in depth which means beyond the roughly 60 mile Uh, Range of the guided MLRS system, Um, they have to use uh, a fairly limited supply of Western-supplied cruise missiles, Storm Shadow or Scalp, um, uh, from the UK and France, uh, respectively. And those are very good, but there aren't many, and they're really designed for hard targets. Um, There will be a lot of Russian targets that are still uh, relatively soft, and a weapon like ATACMS is perfect for this. My immediate thought when I heard the news about ATACMS, was that the really big question for the US now, and this has been the, the question for the US for the whole of this conflict, is going to be about who approves targeting? Because the temptation, if you're Ukrainians, to fire one of these off against a Russian target in Russia is in, will be incredibly strong. You know, if there is a an S-400 system sitting over the Russian border somewhere, that is a an enormous target you would like to get. I'm sure that the u s. has got a targeting cell set up with the Ukrainians. I think that both sides are going to have to uh, resource it even better to make sure that every eight round fired is signed off at you know precise coordinates levels um because otherwise, this is probably the most escalatory weapon capability that that they will have uh, Ukraine will have received yet. I have no problems yeah. at all with that, but I think it's just really got to be used carefully. and I think used carefully. Yeah it will cause the Russians an immense amount of pain. Yeah,
0: even, even more so than uh, a Storm Shadow, which is uh, a, a longer-range weapon and has a precision strike capability the Ukrainians have used with devastating effect to take out ammunition, dumps, command, and control centers. Is ATACMS really that much um, more escalatory?
1: They are of a similar um, you know, broad capability. I think the symbolism of ATACMS and the degree Whoa. to which ATACMS is even better suited to... Uh, uh, even best suited to big, in-depth logistics positions and big air defense positions. Air defense. We're, we're, air defense we're losing
0: you, uh, Sash. You're you're dropping out. Say that. Say that again, okay. because you dropped out entirely for that. So repeat it, please. Thank you. Sorry, apologies.
1: Yeah. Um. Now, I look. I, I accept. I think you know, Storm Shadow, Scalp versus Atacums, They are very. You know, they they, they are similar weapons in terms of their uh, broad. Uh, you know potency their their political symbolism i think eight outcomes though because it is an area weapon because it does uh enable the ukrainians to attack very very large but previously well protected russian positions in depth air defense artillery logistics um and you know, let's be absolutely clear because it is a um it, it's a weapon that looks more like a ballistic missile than anything the ukrainians have received yet um I I think that will make the Russians more uh, unhappy. I don't have a problem with that. Um, They brought all this upon themselves. But I do think that it, um, you know, this is why the Ukrainians would be advised to use it very, very carefully. And if they do, I think they can have a huge effect.
0: Um, And I I, I think the uh, Ukrainians deserve Uh, a lot of credit because they have been very careful uh, to do the strikes in Russia, for example, with organic Ukrainian systems without uh, using Western arms, because I think that's a consideration, whether you're French, whether you're British, whether uh, you're American or or others. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me uh, ask you one last question because our time is very short, but you sort of echoed this uh, in one of your DSCI notes about uh, the uh, European defense more broadly and the European defense agency. Um, Obviously, the UK left the European Union. King Charles was here. Spoke in fluent French to the French Senate, uh, where he talked about sort of the indivisible bond between France uh, and the United Kingdom, uh, and uh, the, it's certainly, I think, expressing the desire and doing some diplomacy as only the monarchy can do, pave over um, some of the challenging bits from the Boris Johnson years, as well as try to build uh, the momentum that Rishi Sunak and Emmanuel Macron uh, have built uh, in in their bromance. Going back to uh, March uh, of this year, how important was the visit, and how does this change the vector of European defence and Britain's role in it?
1: Um, uh, look, I, um, anything that that we as a country can do to repair a lot of the damage that I very deeply personally regret, we you know we've course in the last six years or so, seven years or so has has got to be a, an extremely good thing. And I think your answer absolutely right. This is the sort of uh, fence building that um, heads of state. And monarchs can do even better than uh, than elected premiers, um, uh, so I, I think it's I think it's been uh, very good. Uh- Almost the most important thing about uh, visits like this is the fact that they are approved by both sides in the first place. The fact that this went ahead with the approval of the UK government, the fact this went ahead with, at, at the express invitation of the French government, shows that both sides want to get closer, but they want to work out a way to do it. You know, a, a, a way to start it, so that then the, the political and the and the diplomatic uh, and indeed the military. Uh, sides of the negotiations can, can really get, get going so um the visit is at least as important as everything else because it shows uh it shows a huge amount of willing on both sides um so where does this bring um the uk into defense um actually militarily the UK is, is still very very engaged in europe um uh, because we have troops um uh, in europe we have uh air forces in europe we have very very close links with um, countries predominantly through nato because nato is the way that most of europe d- delivers military power industrially um uh, the global combat air uh, program is uh, currently um uk italian uh, japanese so that gives it a a very very strong uh, foot in the in in the european camp I'm, i sometimes do laugh when i um, hear the Franco-German Scaf referred to as the European combat aircraft. I think my Italian hosts here um, uh, this weekend are also slightly surprised when Italy seems to be somehow excluded from Europe. But you know that's that's political bombast oh. for you. Um, I think one of the programs, or well, sorry, no, yeah, yeah, one of the programs that's going to be most important for the UK and actually where European um, uh, collaboration could be incredibly important is going to be integrated air and missile defence. I, I mean. The UK for thirty years has relied on the fact that we're a terribly long way from any threat. Very, you know, it's as simple as that. Uh, you know, we had what was has sometimes been described as a fifteen hundred nautical mile duvet uh, protecting us, keeping us nice and warm against um, those Nazi Russians. Well, that just isn't the case anymore. The threat just got a whole whole lot nearer. And you know, if we have seen anything um, from the Ukraine war, it has been the incredible power of uh, attacks uh, by missiles on cities and The ability to defend against those, and the UK has no air defences not, not very many, but none. We have, you know, we have stuff that will uh protect our, um the army a bit when it's deployed, or might defend an air base. End of. We don't have the, the medium range surface to air systems like NASAM's or, or Patriots at all. And the research we wrote this week just highlighted the degree to which, at the DSEI show, when all of the UK. Uh, service chiefs basically said you know we're not asking for, for any more budget we you know we have the biggest defense budget in europe we've just got to spend it better and there was real message discipline there the one area where that message discipline was clearly broken was with the uh, chief of the defense staff admiral tony Radikin, chief of the air staff um uh rich knighten um and indeed the chief of general staff patrick sanders saying we need integrated air and missile defense iamd right. and Why is that significant? IAMD is a NATO terminology. What that shows is NATO is saying to the UK, you guys have got to raise your game a lot and the UK recognises that. Um, And so, uh, you know, we're starting to analyse just how much would IAMD cost in very, very bold terms. And in in those terms, start at 10 billion sterling and it could easily be double that because we have nothing. You, You can see that from how much it's costing Poland, for example, to buy uh, Patriot, and then um, a, a lot of batteries of the uh, cam interceptor. So our big conclusion is that this IAMD is going to be the biggest unfunded area of UK defence, and the, the next UK defence secretary after the general election is going to be faced with the metaphorical post-it stamp uh, message on the on the desk saying, I'm sorry, we can't defend the UK against air and missiles. Um, and that becomes, you know, politically a, a, a major issue. So you know, really, the, the 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 clock is now ticking on UK IAMD, and that's going to be a a, a big, a, you know, a really big program.
0: Um, and in uh, about thirty seconds, how concerned are you about uh, the row? Uh, you know, potent Poland's decision to suspend arms deliveries to the Ukrainians uh, unless the Ukrainians stop exporting uh, grain. The Romanians have made noises about this. Slovak, uh, Slovakia, Slovakia, uh, and uh, a couple of others. How serious an issue is this?
1: It's serious, but probably not. Uh, I hope not fatal. It's very, very distressing. It really is. For, just to remind our listeners: Ukraine is one one of the biggest producers of grain in Eastern Europe. Period. Um, you know, hundreds uh, or millions and millions, tens of millions of tons of grain every year. It, it always used to be the breadbasket of Europe. They can't export that grain through the Black Sea, which they always used to. And so their grain exports used to go through the Black Sea, through the Mediterranean, and predominantly, actually, to the Middle East, Africa, North Africa. Um, Now what's happened, they can't export through the Black Sea because the Russians just uh, have have blockaded it. So they are exporting uh, by rail through Europe. Some of that grain then goes to its original destinations, but a lot of that grain, because it's a fungible product, uh, goes into Eastern European countries where it brings the price of grain down because the Ukrainians produce it so efficiently. And so countries where that's happening and where their own farmers are being affected by Ukrainian grain are beginning to get very, well, are getting very, very upset. They're getting more upset if they have an election on Poland, for example. Um, so, you know, what we're starting to see is, you know, the polls are saying we won't export any more weapons to Ukraine until they stop exporting grain. And, um, that is a direct political response of, of where they are at the moment um, in in terms of elections. But you're absolutely right. You know, other Euro- Eastern European nations are getting upset. The European Union has actually been, I think, pretty sound on this. The European Union has been has been subsidising domestic farmers to, uh, so that they don't suffer from this glut of Ukrainian grain. Uh, and that's a really good example in my book of of how a big supranational, uh, you know. A political organization should try to smooth over these problems i hope that that sort of process will continue let's be realistic the polls aren't going to let the ukrainians go under because if they do they're the next guys on the front line um and they have every awareness of what it's like when you're on the front line directly against russia it's not pretty but um it's very very distressing to see uh the um you know the cracks appearing in the what's otherwise been a very impressive united front supporting ukraine
0: Sash, thanks so very much. Really appreciate it. And hopefully we can all convene together next week. Thanks so much. Bon voyage.
1: Thanks, Olga. Always a a pleasure. And I really look forward to uh, talking to Rich and Ron as well next week.
0: And a word from our sponsors, Bell Sponsors, our daily podcast, HII Sponsors, our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems Sponsors, our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications Sponsors, our command and control coverage, GE Aerospace Sponsors, our air and naval coverage, and Spirit Aerosystems Defense and Space Sponsored, our coverage of the Air Force Association's Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show. And joining us now are Ron and Richard, two people who don't need any additional uh, introductions. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. And I'm sorry we couldn't all do this together. I think we're as geographically <laughs> spread out now uh, as we uh, possibly uh, could be. Uh, Ron, uh, walk us through uh, what we saw on markets, right? Worst uh, week in six months uh, and some program news as well that's shaping it. And we'll, we'll get back to that uh, in a moment. But how how did the group perform and why?
2: Yeah, if, if you look at the the S and P for the week, it was it was a tough week. right? The S and P was down almost three uh, percent, and then when you look across uh, our stocks broadly, uh, commercial did worse than defense, but everybody kind of kind of sold off. Uh, the big performer on the week uh, was uh, uh, Textron; they were up actually two percent, uh, which is massively outperforming the market in a, in a week when you know the S and is down three percent. Uh, boeing was down five percent raytheon was down five and a half percent gd two and a half percent Northrop two percent lockheed two and a half percent you get the idea um and then if you look at the airlines actually the airlines were down a bunch, you know delta was down five and a half percent american was down over three percent united was down almost six percent you know, southwest is down was down about five and a half percent so you know, there's there's broad i would say kind of jitters in the commercial aerospace world around um, airlines taking on capacity fares softening airlines not having great numbers right now and that's kind of working its way into uh, commercial aero so we we've seen the performance that we have and like, what you alluded to is exactly right right one Friday that the 10-year yield went uh went above four and a half percent uh closed the week at 4.43 percent which is you know the highest it's been in in over 10 years and, and in, in fact uh, it's, uh, the, the highest it's been since 2007. Uh, and, and the market's really, I think, you know, just like, like you mentioned, adjusting that, I mean, I don't think it was a mystery, but we've been having this, you know, debate in the market about, you know, and I don't know why these expectations are the way they are, but, you know, there, there's this expectation that the Fed's going to raise rates and then the next thing they're going to do is cut rates. But, um, for whatever reason, and, and I've been in the campus, you know, that the Fed's going to hold rates for a while, if not maybe raise a little bit more. Um, that, it, that you're not going to plateau for a while. And I think the market's actually digesting the fact that, hmm, rates might be at this level for a while. And like we've mentioned in the past, the reality is, you know, when you look at uh, the 10 year at about, you know, five, five and a half percent, that's just sort of normal, right? I mean, that's not particularly high and it's not particularly low. We're just coming off of a 20 year period where interest rates were just ridiculously low. And of course, everybody's got to kind of normalize back to that. Um, and then, and and then if you look at oil prices that's been another concern on people's minds wti was a little bit above 90 brent crude was a little bit 93 so it's a, a, a combination of factors and, and then you saw the vix kind of you know really jump up this week because you know the market sold off and you know the two are kind of you know anti correlated that way so um, i think that's where we are
0: richard i'm going to come to you uh in a, in a moment but ron really quick because i realized uh that there was a little bit of air cap news uh that i thought we covered last week but actually we might not have so really quickly tell the audience uh, ge sold uh part of its stake uh in the company just talk to us about you know how big it was and what does it sort of mean really quickly before we we move on to the gear turbofan issue that i want to get uh richard and your take on yeah um ge had a very very large stake
2: in uh air cap and uh, how that all played out was when AirCap bought the G fleet from GE. Um, their part of that deal was structured that GE actually got a bunch of shares in AirCap. Um, and then they sold down to now that GE has about 13% of of AirCap. And most likely uh they'll probably, you know, one more sale, maybe two, but you know, the amount that they could sell is is seen as less of an overhead by investors. When you have a Know, a big share owner that can kind of keep you know selling shares in the market and the market tends to see that as an overhead as an overhang um, and then it's interesting right if you look at the the week uh, that we just went through air cap shares were essentially flat which in you know a, a, a market where commercial aerospace things airlines were down call it three to five percent that's pretty good outperformance and I think that that has that has to do with that among other things right you, when you look at What's going on with the GTF, the shortage of you know, engines and the shortage of narrow bodies, if you're in a lot of engines and narrow bodies, that's seen as generally a positive thing for you. Um so that's yeah, that's that's what's going on there.
0: Um, Richard, uh, at the top of the show, Sash explained the lingering uh, impact of the uh, geared turbofan issue, both on MTU, which had a bad week, and Airbus, which had a bad week. And as he said, right, I mean, only a small number of the engines have been inspected and it's dawning on the market that this might not be an easy fix uh, and could impact hard in terms of future uh, year uh, production as well. I mean, walk us through where we are on this story after folks have had uh, a chance to chew on it for a week. And and Ron, want to get your take on that uh, as well.
3: Yeah. You know, obviously it's been unfolding all summer. Uh, and of course it, uh, the big, the big headline is that things are a lot worse than they first seemed both in terms of total number, uh, total cost and, uh, impact on the system as things are taken offline and, uh, you know, put through the various mate, uh, maintenance and modification programs needed to, to make them right. Um, you know, you've already had people saying, Hey, wait a minute, you're continuing to deliver new jets to Airbus. Um, even though you haven't built sufficient numbers of replacement engines to make us whole while well, we have to ground our existing fleet uh, so you've got a lot of tension there um and therefore the very real possibility that airbus's numbers won't be uh maintained because some of those engines are going to have to be diverted towards existing customers uh and then on top of that the news, news that hit mtu this week was uh, you know basically everyone realizing that this is really just a i believe 50 something percent uh raytheon pratt program the rest of course is their program partners the japanese but especially mtu and uh they're being hit too because well not only because that that's the nature of a risk sharing partnership but also you know this is raytheon's strategy right let's you know let's uh, put some pressure on our partners to uh to kick in or to to feel the pain equally or more so so uh you know basically it's just trouble trickling down i'm afraid
0: ron uh your sense uh, a week into this on what some of the longer-term implications uh are going to be or do you want to go into your um you know what you said that you wanted to discuss which is um companies are having problems executing on programs yeah maybe maybe this can be a segue into that right so just a
2: couple of quick comments on on the issues with gtf um we hosted a call this week with uh Jonathan Berger from uh, Alton Aviation uh, Consultancy, um, and you know Jonathan does a lot of work with MRO shops and so on and so forth, and uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with him. Um, but anyway, he framed it this way, and I, and I think it's it's very clever because um, I, I think it really points to the, the the root of the issue. You know, we you know with the GTF we've moved from teething pains into just kind of downright root canal where, you know, your teething pains are these you know, things you deal with when you, when you first start up, but this is, you know, this is a, a very big issue and we still don't know, um, and we haven't been told incontrovertibly one way or the other, um, does this impact the engines, you know, the on the 220, the engines on the E2, the F-135, because this same powder and process was used in a lot of other Pratt engines. And then the other fact that, you know, when you end up with something like, this, you know, Pratt said or RTX said, 600 airplanes on ground, how do you get all of that alternative lift? And I mean, it's just, it's a, from um, a logistics point of view in the current environment where MRO lead times, you know, typical engine uh, shop visit could be 60 to 70 days and now pushing out to, you know, 250, 300 days. This is just becomes a logistical nightmare. Uh, so we'll see where it all goes. Um, and then maybe that's a transition to if you if you think across pretty much all the primes and all the OEMs, everybody's got execution problems all over the place. Um, some of this started pre-COVID, you know, clearly, uh, you, know, as, you know, as an example, if you look at kind of all the stuff going on with Tanker, uh, but some didn't. And, you know, most certainly you have to, <clears throat> excuse me, you have to, Think that on some level, that um, COVID, the retire, the mass retirements from the industry, just sort of the loss of intellectual capital and intellectual capability uh, and skills and tribal knowledge that the industry lost when you had these big retirements post COVID, has just aggravated everything. Where if you had a problem and the problem could have been contained, I mean, you know in X number of days or X number of expense, if you just don't have that knowledge around anymore, everything just seems a lot worse. And it's and when you think across truly any Prime or any, any of the OEs or many of the suppliers, everybody's having problems all over the place. And you just have to kind of wonder and scratch your head, on some level, is the industry kind of broken and how long is it going to take to get the intellectual horsepower back, both, you know, on the shop floors and in the engineering ranks to get everything back on track.
0: Richard, uh, do you subscribe to that brain drain element of the of the discussion?
3: Yeah, I mean, how could you not, right? I mean, it's, uh, you know, for years we've known that there's demographic bathtub issues, but the pandemic exacerbated that so much because, you know, it, early retirements were the easiest way to... Uh, cope with uh and what appeared to ironically be an oversupply of labor situation back in 2020 Horribly <laughs> <roughly laughs> enough uh so that a lot of that that mentoring process was broken for a couple of years because you lost a lot of key talent just before you hired a bunch of new people uh, that's that's exactly right y- you know there's uh then you, you know, you've got the broader you know, labor situation, I, I keep stressing, that, I can't stress this enough, but this is the first time in history that we've been the lagging indicator in this economy. You know, almost always civil aviation leads the way in an economic recovery. And uh, this time, if you look at that wonderful Federal Reserve uh, data set that shows everything that I don't care about, it's uh, I think the, the technical title of this data set is uh, Non-Defense Capital Goods Excluding Aircraft you know comma richard uh it's and and it it took off bad out of hell before civil aviation did what's the reason it's you know this uh these other sectors of the economy the other 99 percent or whatever uh hired people first and we were smacked in the you know face by inflation it doesn't normally happen this way normally we hire first uh that first and you know then uh uh, on, on. I mean, there so many other factors, but let's let's be honest here. There is the under-resourcing aspect. You know, it, we were hiring fast, but not fast enough because a lot of people were starved for working capital in the aftermath, not just of uh, the devastating pandemic, but also um, because of the Mac shutdown in the case of many suppliers. So you know, even even though there was a breakneck upward ankle, it you know because of that. You know being last to the game and hiring people and the under resourcing aspect it was even worse than it, it it would have been otherwise
0: um let me uh, just a uh, quick uh, note to our audience to check out our weekly podcasts cavus ships hosted by chris cavus and chris cervello and sponsored by hii and ge marine a ge aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters the downlink with laura winter who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by G.E. Aerospace, that I co-host with our very own J.J. Uh, Gertler. Ron, do you think that some of this great exodus of, of talent, right? I mean, not all of these people fully retired, put their feet up, and went to the Carolinas, Florida, Arizona, or 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 uh, someplace else, right? Um, some of these people did end up getting hired at innovative smaller companies. Uh, you, you know, I mean, ultimately, do you think that at a time when the department is looking to drive an innovation agenda and starting to do things d- differently. Folks are going to hear me say jet zero again, but I think that was a tectonic uh, decision. And we've heard from the secretary of the air force and other leaders. It is a model that has been employed and will increasingly be employed. Um, do, do, do you think that this gives an advantage to new entrance uh, in terms of talent where it's not an empty promise by, you know, sort of, five guys in a garage, five guys and gals in a garage, right? That it's like, holy cow, you know, they may have actually some real engineering acumen behind them that may be driving what it is that they're doing. Yeah, it's a good point. I I think up
2: to a point and the challenge, and I think this is the challenge for the DOD is, and we can use Jet Zero as an example, you can give them that initial contract that's you know good size right It's for 250 million approximately but what what happens next right and it and I think one of the challenges that the DoD is gonna have to figure out and maybe they have already maybe they haven't I don't know um is this you know, small companies coming up with innovative things and then the products getting stuck in that you know, call it you know Valley of Death, right? right. They become interesting DARPA esque things that ultimately go nowhere, <laughs> right? right? So, right. It, that that's the challenge. I I really do think, right? So it's it, it you know to the to the credit of the DOD, I think they have made a lot of progress in well, how do we fund you know interesting smaller startups? And we've seen that not just at Zero, right? I mean, you know, you know, you know, we've seen it with some of the the, the Vertical uh, EV tall companies and other other novel things, right? But ultimately, what is the commitment to getting an actual product out there? How do you get a new innovative thing in the budget, right? Because that always becomes where things die in, in the valley of death is right. just getting it in the budget is this huge hurdle. So
0: I think it's very encouraging. It's the right direction, but they're not there yet. Richard, do you do you think that this, you know, I mean, just using your personal experience and contacts, is it has some of this talent flowed to uh, small innovative shops that become the threats for the bigs uh, downstream?
3: Uh, anecdotally, it certainly seems
0: this way. Um, you know, especially well, <laughs> you know,
3: um, our, our friends at um, our friends at uh, you know, Jet Zero. I mean. It's it's boy. There's an awful lot of familiar faces, old friends, and uh, and and uh, retired retired talent who's just you know passionate about the industry and want to stay there, um, and certainly some other innovative companies. I, I I'm going to have to go perhaps with a little bit of a glass half full. Uh, you know, inside a very silver lining, there's a dark cloud. Which is that a lot of these innovative shops are, you know, our friends in the EV toll world, several hundred of them strong, and they've dragged an awful lot of talent away from the industry. And I tend to regard much of this, you know, not all of it's going to be, you know, wasted, but a lot of it's going to implode. It's going to be a right. an unpleasant bubble. Some will survive. Some will be interesting new air vehicles, but there's 250. Uh, <laughs> no market needs 250 new design concepts. All dragging talent away from the traditional part of the industry—that really concerns me. If there were twenty, I'd be thrilled. You know, two hundred and fifty? No, we could use those people. Can we have them back, please? Uh, in,
0: in, interesting, uh, interesting indeed. Let me—I um, I, want uh, to get um, to Textron uh, and the deal between Textron and NetJets, uh, fifteen hundred airplanes, which is a which is a pretty big uh, order. Uh, And uh, Ron, why don't you start us off? And Richard, um, you know, what does this mean? Right? I mean, we have some genuine traffic questions, um, right? All of us are in this system, and we're traveling a lot. And we're noticing uh, changes in patterns on how people uh, travel, and then uh, some overcapacity issues. <laughs> some of which may be resolved by engines that don't work, and and then all of a sudden we have less capacity anyway. Uh, Ron, talk to us a little bit about uh, the Textron uh, uh, NetJet Steel, uh, and what it means, and then maybe Richard, you know, take a look at at that projected future capacity and you know where where you see capacity going kind of broadly, because Ron sort of referenced it at the top. Go ahead, Ron
2: yeah it's it, it's interesting
0: um if, if
2: you look at the the text on that jet deal it's for 1500 options right so it wasn't firm uh but it it goes out um you know 1500 excuse me 15 years yeah 1500 years and it goes into the next millennium it's you know 15 years so that's about 100 options a year ballpark you know if, if they're executed that's a lot of planes and you know, this is an extension of a trend we've been seeing, where fleet operators have been making um, bigger orders or you know, bigger intentions to order through you know, option programs. Uh, Embraer just had another deal like this with NetJets uh, not too long ago. It was around the timing of eBays uh, for two hundred and fifty uh, aircraft, uh, and I think that was for Praters. And and what's what's interesting here is a couple things. You, you're seeing the fleet operators. You're making orders that on i think on one hand are you know it's it's very you know from a disclosure point of view very clear right and and what i mean is if you go back to the financial crisis and cessna had a you know big backlog and then pretty much overnight during the nice financial crisis that backlog disappeared well if you're placing options for orders there it's it's i think it's a more clean way to represent what your backlog is is it is NetJets really going to take 1500 airplanes maybe maybe not no we'll see right um, but it's showing an and an, it's 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 positive from the side of view it's it's an intention you know if if we can and conditions are there this is what we want to do what i find also fascinating about that particular deal is it goes out so far right you know in 15 years you'd expect maybe yeah, you know, a generation of airplanes that are currently available today to have a midlife upgrade and a whole new generation of airplanes to come out, particularly in kind of that mid and light size segment of, of the market. So so we'll see how it all goes. So it's it's I think it does mark a change in how you know business jet, executive aviation fleet operators are managing their fleets. And and on, and on one hand, they're kind of acting a little bit more like airlines. But they're also, on the other hand, taking less of financial commitment up front because it's just options. Now I'm certain right. the way this mm-hmm. works is the NetJet specific changes to any of the, to the Cessna airplanes. They'll most likely, I would imagine, be paying for the non-recurring engineering. So there's some financial commitment there. But but ultimately, you know, if they, if they don't take any of these, it's they're not canceling anything or or anything like that. But but it's you know it's it, it definitely is sort of a, a change in behavior on how how these bigger fleet operators and and i i should mention too if you look at um the number of airplanes in the industry that have gone to the fleet operators historically it used to be about maybe you know 10 percent of, of the industry that's sort of the rule of thumb and you know COVID blew away like all these rules of thumb and, and now what you're seeing is much more than that i think if you look back in in 2022 was about a quarter of deliveries went to fleet operators. So if that trend were to continue having, you know, a a big intention to order airplanes with an important fleet operator, arguably that's a pretty good thing.
0: Richard, uh, your take and uh, sort of where you see uh, traffic patterns, and we've only got a couple of uh, minutes left, and I just got to quickly ask you uh, a, a question about Ukraine before we park
3: yeah this was a fascinating bit of news. Uh, you know I was, I was a little intrigued that it didn't happen at NBAA, which of course is uh, just uh, in, in, in a couple of months but uh, I guess the the timing was linked to some other <laughs> news I don't know but um, everything Ron said of course, absolutely right you know and of course it, there's that classic airline economics truism that if an airline makes money, it orders planes. If it keeps making money, it takes delivery of those planes. There isn't necessarily a connection. And uh, it's now true for the business jet uh, fractional operators as well. It it has been for some time. Right now, things are pretty darn good. And so things are ramping up. Uh, Ron says 10% historically. Uh, yeah, it's it's a little more complicated. It's been more like either zero percent or twenty percent. You know, back in the late nineties, early two thousands, when this industry was really taking off, fractionals, it was uh, it was twenty. Then it went down to one or two. <laughs> you average it out over time, it's ten. So we're obviously in a, a kind of a re equipment cycle plus plus. Um, Ron, of course, is completely right that uh, you know we'll we'll see whether the fifteen hundred. But then most of all. Uh, you know ponder the the commodification aspects of this obviously when you've got a bunch of new users who are going to be a bit more price sensitive because well they're they're not elon musk or somebody buying a gulfstream 700 uh then you're gonna have a downward pressure on on prices and terms downward pressure on everything and this deal reflects that uh you've got them buying you know 1500, of course, with tremendous discounts. I'm sure in Net drives a hard bargain, they always have. Uh, but they've gotten even harder, you know, even greater discounts from Embraer Air. So now they applied that pressure to Cessna and said, Give us your best price on 1500. And uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure this is this reflects. And the profit margins that result will reflect that commodification, and then you have the ascend itself, which is kind of you know. I mean, Cessna is good at building jets that pilots like and supporting them very well, and having great value for money. But ultimately, these are more and more commodified jets. It's a you know, just launched a few months ago, but it's basically an XL XLS A with you know new cupcake holder for pilot or something like that. You know, and and and, and engine tweaks and whatever else. Uh, This is a jet that's basically a mix and match product going back to the 70s and 80s, you know, parts of the Citation 3, parts of the Citation 10, parts of the Citation 5 and Bravo, whatever else. In other words, uh, it's a jet built for the commodification of the industry. So good for them for creating that. Um, But it does reflect an industry trend that's ultimately going to be a bit dilutive of margins as these new participants
0: uh, continue to join. Hey, it's good to have a bigger industry. Um, I, I love. I love the fact that you're calling it the Frankenstein of jets, uh, you know, an arm here, a leg there, a wing there, a fuselage there, an engine there. And, and look at this, it, as long as it ends up working, uh, yeah. that's that's the important part. Uh, and it is a jet uh, that works uh, and does have a, quite a lot of flexibility to it. Okay. Just uh, really quickly, I asked uh, Sash about this uh, in terms of, um, you know, kind of a, a big uh, potential story. I mean, obviously everybody's looking at Ukraine. There's a, there's a concern uh, that because the uh, offensive uh, appears to have stalled, although, um, you know, as as uh, you guys heard, Sash at the top of the show made the argument that, look, the Ukrainians are keeping the Russians off balance. They just hit the Black Sea uh, fleet uh, headquarters and, and damaged it. And it looks like the administration might be uh, clearing ATACMS, not in the precision strike capacity, but area denial. And, and Sash's take on that was, um, that it sends a powerful uh, psychological message because it is a ballistic missile, uh, ultimately, as opposed to a cruise missile. Even though this, the uh, the um, Scalp uh, and the Storm Shadow are more precision strike uh, weapons that the Ukrainians have used into to great effect. From your standpoint, what are some of the systems that need to be going to Ukraine, and does the ATACMS fundamentally change the dynamic of this conflict at all, or or the or the Polish block on weapons, right? I mean, what's the dynamic that you see going forward as a King's College graduate, one of the world's finest military programs?
3: <laughs> yeah, but so that was like 35 years ago. So I'm trying to remember, but... You know, the, I'm uh, trying to
0: remember this I'm thing called defense. This. Oh, sorry. Yeah,
3: what was all that about? <laughs> uh, it, you know, it, it, the first thing they teach you, of course, is that there's, uh, there's never a miracle weapon. You get a lot of stuff that's hyped up, but nothing in particular does the trick and the other thing of course is that um offense defense they kind of blur together um and it, you know we've been saying all this time that clearly the defense is in the ascendancy as evidenced by the you know javelin missile and other key so-called quote miracle unquote <laughs> weapons which uh you know are really just ways of uh of that that of, of effect you know doing this do doing the same thing that we've done for 50 60 70 years which is pre- using precision guided munitions to destroy tanks it's just that the technology has got a bit better um anyway range and the ability to carry the war home to the enemy is clearly something that Ukrainians are, are keen to do what happens when they do that because right now they're you know hitting counter value targets like you know the black sea fleet and whatever else what if they start hitting I don't know civil infrastructure uh, or oil refineries or things like that as they bulk up their offensive weapons capabilities um that's going to be something key to follow and how will the russians react to that yeah uh, that's why of course the administration and others have been reluctant to provide f-16s ATACMs, and other weapons uh that carry the fight home to the enemy because we don't really know how this plays out and we don't know the reaction I'm not. I'm not arguing either way. It's just that this could be. Um, well, this could. Uh, this could play out any number of ways.
0: Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, hope you guys have a terrific weekend, a terrific week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. And great to be here, Vago. Thanks.
3: Yeah. Thanks for doing this, Vago. Good to be on.
0: And bon voyage uh, to you both. Uh, thanks uh, to you, the audience, for joining us. As always, we appreciate it very much. And a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. Uh, tune in tomorrow uh, for the Look Ahead program with Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analysis, as well as Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners. Hope you all have a great day. Thanks again, and see you tomorrow.